As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Total Soccer Show and a special episode in which we dig into all things United Soccer League via a chat with USL Sporting Director Mark Cartwright. Mark joined USL around a year ago in June 2021 as the league's first ever sporting director with a remit that focuses on the USL Academy program, talent identification, player development, coaching, contracts and global transfers. Mark is a former goalkeeper who played for a number of English teams and for the Florida Tech Panthers during his collegiate career. He's also been a manager, an agent, a FIFA consultant, a co-creator of the English Football Association's Level 5 Technical Directors Workshop, and he was also technical director at Stoke City between 2012 and 2019. So yes, Mark has done it all in the beautiful game, and now he's realising the USL's big ambitions, aiming to grow its pro player pathway and increase its visibility on a global scale. My name's Ryan Bailey, here's my chat with Mark, who was speaking to TSS from USL headquarters in Tampa, Florida. Mark, thank you very much for joining us on Total Soccer Show. How are you today? Where are you today? Uh, I'm great, Ryan. Thanks. Firstly, thanks for the invite. And um, Yeah, so at the moment, I'm, I'm currently at the USL headquarters, which is based in Tampa. Very nice. And uh, do you set your watch to the storms at 3 p.m. every day down in Tampa? Is that how it works down there? It pretty much, mate, yeah. Certainly over the next couple of months, you'll be able to see, literally just behind me over the shoulders of the airport and you can see the storms rolling in literally on the dot, 3 o'clock, 3.30. Um, and if it looks a particularly bad one, you, you get you get the hell out of Dodge and go home because <laughs> they, uh, they struggle to drive at the best of times over here, but with a massive thunderstorm, it makes it even worse. Indeed. Now, obviously, a little bit of a different climate for you in Florida. What, what, um, was that part of what attracted you to the role to come over to the states? I mean, it's, I could understand totally if it was. <laughs> it wasn't actually. Um, I mean, I've been here before, so I did a, a university scholarship in Florida. So I'd, I'd always, at the age of eighteen, so I always sort of 
I guess fell in love with America back then and then, but obviously my pathway took me a different route. Now, to, to be fair, coming here was more about where I saw the league going and how how could I help it develop and get to that place where it was um, a stronger league and a, and a bigger player, certainly in terms of the global transfer market. So you took this job about a year ago, Mark. Um, before Actually, before I get into that, let's, let's talk about your actual role. You're a sporting director. Obviously, uh, many of our listeners will be aware of what that role is at a club. But what is it in the context of USL? The, the uh, USL has a chairman, it has a president, a COO, a CEO, and so on. But how, how do you describe what you do day to day? So if you're aware of what a sporting director does at a club, then you've got to multiply that by the 40 so professional clubs. So you're overseeing all 40 clubs who are all at different stages of their development. So it's more of education and helping them get to the point where they have the right structure in place, they're doing the right due diligence, have the right processes so that they're, you know, they're not um, wasting money unnecessarily. And they're also looking at the succession planning and development of players so that they can start bringing in that extra revenue stream that's that is the global transfer market, which is, you know, as you can see in Europe, it's absolutely massive. So we're not quite there yet in terms of those fees, but you know um, the last couple have certainly raised the bar, and I think we're we're just going to go from strength to strength. Uh, so you started with USL about a year ago, uh, last June, I believe, if I'm if I'm correct, correct there. Yeah. So how did you see the US soccer landscape when you arrived? How did you see the USL landscape? Uh, that work you spoke about there was there a lot of it to be done? What what you find, Ryan, is on the on the business side of the clubs, they're incredibly sophisticated. The league helps them massively. You know, they're well run in terms of ticketing, commercial activities, game day experience. The whole thing is, is incredibly well run. But that was the that's part of the problem. They just looked at it from a business point of view. So um, players, you know, who are, if you look at a PL sheet, the players' wages are the biggest liability. So the owners were looking at players as being liabilities and not assets. So again, you're having to change the viewpoint of that to make them understand that these are actually your club's biggest assets um, and from that you then go into contract management and if you're only giving players one year with one year extensions you're not able to monetize the value of that player because you haven't got long enough to either market them or you've only got one transfer window when you can sell them so again it, it then builds into uh, contract management and everything that goes along with it then the academy succession planning so everything that you and I would probably take for granted in a in a Bundesliga team, in a Premier League team, you know, we, we're having to sort of not start from scratch, but start from the bottom up. But which is great because it gives you the opportunity to really put something in place that is going to be there for the long term. And, you know, that's what a sporting director does. You know, it takes the takes the vision of the owner and puts those short, medium and long term strategies in place to make sure that 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 club is still there in 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And you mentioned you were at college. Um, that was Florida Tech, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Very nice. And what's your thoughts on how the game has moved on since you were last in Florida to now? I mean, I, I moved to the States in 2011 and I saw a massive sea change in the popularity of the game. Um, yeah. You know, more and more soccer shirts on the streets and that kind of anecdotal stuff so uh, from from back when you were there before how much has the game grown oh, it's massive i mean nobody um 
I mean, I, I was out here in 1991, so a little bit just before you. But <laughs> in, in terms of the game, then you know, it was it was relatively unknown. Nobody, you know, the, the top sports were the top sports: baseball, basketball, um, you know, American football. But I think now um, soccer has has grown, and it's probably the third most watched sport in the country now. So, in terms of figures, you know, it's flipped on the head. When I came over here, you know, and probably when you were over here as well, parents wanted players to go to college. You know, there was no, uh, nobody saw a, a career in in football. Nobody saw that that was where you could go and earn a decent living. Whereas that, again, that's now flipped on its head and, and parents can see that actually little Johnny can go and make a hell of a good career for himself. He's got the clubs where he can go and play. He's got the pathway to Europe. <clears throat> and that's where all the players want to play. You know, all the top American lads want to go and test themselves in Europe. So again, it's making sure that um, as a league, we can build those pathways for the players and get them over there. Now, you've got a lot of experience in the game, Mark, if you don't mind me saying, in addition to playing at a collegiate level, uh, you were a player in the UK as well. You're a goalkeeper. Um, I'm not going to call you a journeyman. You played for a few clubs though, right? Yeah, yeah, I did. And you've been a a manager, you've been an agent and a a technical director at Stoke as well. Um, To focus on on your playing career, you played for Shrewsbury, Wrexham, Halifax and a few others. Was there a career highlight on the field for you? I had had a few. Um, I mean, I was looking off the, when I was at Brighton, we won promotion. And I've always found, you know, that, that, that was a special club for me. That that's got a you know a big place in the heart. I mean, promote had a great team, had great team spirit, you know, from the back four all the way up to, to sort of Bobby Zamora at the top, who obviously went on and, and did very well for himself. Um, you know, and then and then just some of the achievements um, you know, that I had with Wrexham, you know, being a Welsh under 21, and also, you know, getting to be involved in the European Cup winners' cup, because back then, if you won the Welsh Cup, you qualified for Europe. So just some of these um, things that you don't, when you're actually doing it, you don't think anything of it. It's only when you sit, when it finishes and you can sit back and, and reflect that you think, oh, yeah, you know, actually, I didn't have the career that I wanted to have, but I still had a bloody good career, you know, and it lasted 10, 11 years. So, um, you know, I should be thankful for that. And I wouldn't be sat here. So the, the way I look at it, Ryan, is, you know, I did my apprenticeship at York and that was a great experience. I had a very bad injury and I was told I'd never play the game again. And at that point, you know, you sort of battling mentality kicks in. You go, no, I'll, I'll prove you wrong. And um, so I came back and, and did well. And, and I had the opportunity to come to America or go on trial with Sunderland. And I chose America. And it was at that point, leaving the country and coming here, it made me grow up, you know, because you're away from home. I think if I'd have stayed in England, I'd have been like, you know, 90% of the other young players and I'd have drifted out of the game, I think. But taking that step out, coming here, you know, winning the national championships, being on your own, growing up, developing, that's what gave me the mental strength to then come back to England and actually make it uh, as a professional, you know, firstly with Wrexham. Um, I was there for seven years, actually, and then it was, I then became nomadic and a German after that. And, and sitting there with a choice of the northeast of England or southern Florida, tough call? Uh, no. <laughs> I didn't think so. <laughs> um, so Mike, you spent a long time, as I say, as technical director at Stoke, uh, working with uh, Tony Pulis and Mark Hughes and I suppose Gary Rowett towards um, 
Yeah, Paul Lambert, Gary Rowett, Nathan yep. Jones. Um, we, we were very secure and then we went through a, a few in a short space of time, which was very unlike Stoke. Yeah, so you would have been, you would have seen a period of big growth, uh, uh, of profit, of, of the squad value going up, big signings yeah. like uh, Jean Shakiri and Marco Nortovic coming in during your time. What yeah. was that like being there as Stoke was growing as a club? Um, well, we still we had we had limits, so we were never um, we were in terms of remit on what we would spend and what we would wouldn't spend. Um, you know, we, we were very sort of clever with the recruitment at that point. Um, obviously, the change in style of football from Tony to Mark was a, was a key factor in the type of player that we were bringing in. Um, we had a good base of, we had a strong base of players, strong mentality, you know, strong characters. Uh, and to bring in sort of, you know, the, the more flair players like Bojan and, and Marco, um, the hardest part of bringing them in um, was convincing them that we weren't Stoke City of old, you know. So we were constantly battling with the long ball, long throw-ins that were that were sort of that were Stoke, you know, prior to, to Mark coming in. Now Mark was a a huge factor in the fact that we could go and get these players, and we could sit down and we would, you know, we would talk to them about how he wanted to play and what he wanted to do. And then I think you know at one point we. Ibrahim Afalai and um, Marco and, and a few others. We had more Champions League winners than Chelsea in the team at, at one point, which was which was very bizarre. And and, and the start and it worked. You know, for for a period of time, it worked really well. Um, and it was it was incredible to see some of the games. You know, beating Arsenal, Liverpool. I mean, beating Liverpool six one at home on the last day of the season was phenomenal. Um, and it was just th those moments, you know, stick with you, you know, throughout your career. You don't get everything right, obviously, but you know, you've got to you've got to try and stay consistent and not get too down when things aren't going well. But at the same time, you've got to enjoy the beating those top teams and Man United and Chelsea. It was it was good times. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Now, in your position as a technical director, as sort of the conduit between the owners and the team, if you will, how much of a pressure is there to turn a profit versus, say, development long-term of the squad and of the club itself? I mean, obviously, the Coates family, you own Stoke, they're not fly-by-night owners by any means. They're well-established and they have a betting empire and they're not going anywhere from Stoke. So I'm not saying they're going to be terrible owners by any means they're probably quite the opposite but what's 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 the pressures that you would face as a technical director in terms of balancing the books and balancing the squad well it's it's like anything isn't it yes they they want to 
they want to invest in the club, but they also don't want to be stupid investors. So you you know you've got to. Uh, when I first went in, the, the academy was literally just a building that was attached to the club. You know there was there was no player in there that was going to be good enough to break through into a Premier League team. So that was that was one of the issues that we we needed to address. Um, and then also you know making the the team better, making it more valuable, actually being able to, what, what Stoke hadn't done um, is buy players, develop them, sell them. So, you know, Marco was probably one of the first. We got, um, signed, signed Marco for two and a half million and sold him for, you know, 20 to 25 million. And then uh, Mark Muniesa, we had on a free from Barcelona and sold him for five million. So little things like that. And, and to be fair, the owners were great. Because anything that we brought in like that got reinvested back into the squad. You know, so for example, when when we had Jack Butland coming through and we could sell Asmir Begovic to Chelsea, we could do so to then help us bring in Zerdan Shakiri. You know, so it was little so they're the pressures of trying to make sure that it's all mapped out. Um, and if you know, if we went outside the remit, um, you know, so for example, if we were going to sign um a young player, um you know, but he was, you know, it could be quite expensive, young players nowadays. Um, it would be a real justification of why should we bring this in? What's the pathway for that player? How soon do we see him getting into the first team? And then, you know, how, what sort of value would he have? So they were very clever owners. You know, the chief exec was a very clever guy. And and, and if you could justify the reasons behind the investment, they, they would do it. Um, you know, and I think they've had... Certainly, a lot of the the younger players, and don't get me wrong, the academy takes a while to get to get going. You're not; it's not an immediate fix. You know, it's it's probably a four or five year investment. And and to the Coates family, you know, they absolutely wanted the academy to succeed, and they wanted younger players to come through. Um, but to do that, we had to go and, and recruit players. You know, so I mean, they've got um, a whole host of them now that are doing incredibly well in the first team with Tyrese Campbell. Well, Nathan Collins, who they sold, Harry Suter, Josh Timon, you know, and these were all players that were young, brought in, developed, moulded, loaned, and got through to the first team. So, you know, it's 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 doing that. Um, so the pressures are, you know, can you make the academy work? Can you make the first team balance itself out as well, whilst you know staying in a in a good place? Now the cliche. Stoke Mark is that uh, can they do it on a cold Tuesday night in Stoke I think it might have been Alan Shearer or someone like that who coined <laughs> that one I, I, I forget but what I want to know is does USL have a cold night in Stoke is it like a cold night in Detroit what, what, yeah, what, what's the equivalent it's, uh, it's gonna be there's gonna be I mean the some of the northern states certainly get a little bit chilly in the uh in the winter months so certainly Detroit is other team you know that have got that sort of um, strong fan base you know it's a yeah they're probably the the one that you would say okay it's a it's a hard-working you know city you know probably um can get pretty damn cold can get pretty windy pretty wet so yeah i would probably say they're they're probably the one mate <laughs> probably not florida uh, not, no. <laughs> not too chilly down there um now it seems to me mark that usl's in a hot place right now. It's in a period of growth. You've got uh, new clubs arriving in the next few years. Teams like Indy 11 doing plenty of investment in their facilities. New leagues and divisions for women coming in. The USL Super League coming in. 
And I think I saw earlier today as we record a 10-year partnership with a company called Legends to accelerate the business side of things. Yeah. It seems like it's a very exciting time to be a part of the league. No, it's, uh, it, it is. And that's, again, you know, we spoke at the start about what attracted you to it. And you can see, you know, if you were looking at um, a timeline, <clears throat> you know, the, the leagues around Europe are, full, are fully adults. You know, the USL is probably in that toddler, you know, sort of, seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old sort of stage. There's there's so much growth left in it. There's a something ridiculous like $3 billion worth of investment into stadiums and training grounds going on around the league. Um, and then with the you know the the good partnerships with companies like Legends that will help again the the cash flow on the business side. Um, you know, if we then bring up the level of professionalism on the footballing side, then it's it's got it's just going to keep growing and growing and growing. And, and the fans are here. You know, the, the fans want to see it. Um, we're about building community clubs in, in areas where maybe Major League, you know, don't think it's a big enough market. But for us, you know, if, it's, if there's a club there and it can be a community club and it can, you know, grow with the community, then it's, it's worthwhile venture. That's really interesting you mentioned community. That was one of the things I was going to bring up as maybe a differentiator between USL and MLS, where I would suggest maybe cynically that some MLS teams might treat community as marketing, whereas it seems like a lot of USL teams are really part of the fabric of the community. Um, yeah, that, that's the goal. I mean, the MLS, have, you know, can't fault them. They've done an incredible job in, in what they do with, the, with how they run it and the value of the franchises and, and everything else. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, we we one hundred percent want to be that that fabric. We want the fans to you know to ultimately become you know to become tribal. That if you're in a certain area, that's your club. Um, you know, we want our clubs to develop local talent as well as bringing in other talents. Um, so it's a really and and we've got owners that are a hundred percent committed to being able to give something back to that community through through the joys of sport. You know, so we are going down that route. So. You know, and, and these clubs are also very much run like European clubs. You know, we're not a single entity league. We're we're just we're the league, you know, and the clubs own their players, they they can do what they want with the players, but we're here to guide them and give them the help to make them become the best clubs they can be. So not being single entity, Mark, and having the clubs own their players, is that a big strength for the clubs when it comes to the transfer market? Is it making them easier to deal with for, for yeah. foreign clubs, for example? Massively, massively. And, you know, I don't want to talk, talk out of line about anybody else's model, but I do think that, you know, if you're if you're a European club and you, you see how um, you just have to make one phone call and that's it, you go through the deal like you would in Europe, then I, I do think that that's, the more you can look like them, the more comfortable they feel with you, then the easier it is. You know, for, for me, um, we've got a couple of initiatives that we're, we're doing a hell of a lot of research on, you know, promotion, relegation and aligning with the international calendar. Now, for me, you know, from a selfish point of view, you know, I know we have the weather situation. It gets incredibly hot in the south during the summer, gets incredibly cold in the north during the winter. But I think if we can align ourselves with the international calendar and make that work, then again, it only benefits our clubs in terms of transfers because we're so aligned then with the rest of the world and the game. Is that a realistic proposition, aligning the calendars? Well, it's something we're doing a lot of um, study on and research. And, uh, you know, if once we've got all that in, it's, 
it will be given to the owners and it will go, you know, go to a vote from there. And is that the same case for promotion and relegation? That's a, that's a hot topic, isn't it? Yeah, no. And, and again, I think, you know, I think the majority of fans uh, in America have grown up watching the Premier League, Serie A, the Championship, Bundesliga. So they, they're excited about that. You know, you talk about meaningful games, you know, and they, they want this. They want the buzz of, of that. So I think, um, and we're not in a position, it's not like the Premier League, where if you get relegated, the, the difference in money is so vast, we're not there yet. So, you know, it's, it's very much achievable at the moment. So, I, you know, personally, again, I'd, I'd like to see it, but, you know, it's down to the owners on that one. Yeah, and this is, of course, we're talking about promotion and relegation within the USL ecosystem itself, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. which that, that would be pretty exciting from a fan's perspective, definitely. Well, it'd be the, the first time ever in American uh, professional sports league that there's been promotion and relegation. Exciting. We'll look out for that then, shall we? Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> so what, is, what, is, um, what does USL aim to be and aim to become? Presumably it's to become a part of the global soccer ecosystem, a bigger part of that conversation. Is it to be a selling league? Yeah, I, I think um, we do want, you know, listen, if you look at the world market, you know, we're a, we're a smaller player in that. So I think we've got the biggest footprint of clubs across the whole of America. So if you figure out how many players there are in that footprint, you know, we we undoubtedly can develop some of the top players for the world in the coming years, you know, given the pathway that they now have through the academy system into the first teams, you know, they have to be good enough, obviously. And the moment a player of 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 hits a first team consistently in any professional league around the world, the top clubs are watching because of the, you know, the, the technology that's available to them now. So, you know, if we, if we start, if we continue developing that we are doing, and we continue strengthening the league in terms of the standard and the quality on the pitch, then we will become more and more involved in that transfer market. And I think it's imperative of a, you know, for, for young clubs and in a young league, you have to be a selling league um, because then you can reinvest the income back into your team, back into your clubs. And everything else around it so it might it will as we become more and more a selling league we'll become a stronger league with it as well this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra the official beer sponsor of the NBA want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game and more head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. James Keston, the owner of Orange County SC, had a quote from a couple of weeks back. Uh, they sold Kobe Henry, of course, uh, to Stad Rem a couple of weeks back uh, for a record fee. He said, the young US player is the most undervalued asset on the international transfer market in all of global football. 
What do you think of that? I would probably agree with him at the moment um, because, you know, certainly we have to um, consistently produce the talent and we have to consistently sell it. And then it has to consistently prove that it's worthy of that, that next move. So Kobe Henry goes to start the Reims, does really well. You know, there's every chance he'll get sold for 20, 30, 40 million. Um, and then if the next one underneath him, you know, goes through, whether it's, you know, a kid from Louisville or a kid from Birmingham, you know, wherever they go next, if they then develop and move on, then, then the value rises. But I think with each deal that we are doing at the moment, we're getting more and more value for the players because clubs are around the world are recognising what we've, the talent we've got. We're not going to hit Premier League prices, you know, because that's just unachievable because we don't have that global sort of footprint. But, you know, we're, we're not looking to do that. We're just looking to make sure that we build this up slowly, steadily, properly, and just then end up at a fair market value. And I suppose it's about establishing a new pro or an alternate pro player pathway, isn't it? There's, there's the collegiate way, there's MLS. A lot, there's been a trend in recent years of a lot of young talent going to lower level European teams. So is the idea or is an idea that you'd like to promote that that talent might be better off being developed domestically? Well, I think that's, that's already happening, Ryan. There's a lot of young players. Um, so if you take Orange County, for example, they've probably sold five or six players to Europe. So they've got um, a proven pathway for a young player to uh, ignore the shining lights of uh, another league, come into Orange County, come in with a set plan, a set pathway of making sure that he's developed, he plays and he gets that transfer to Europe. So I think as more and more of our team get that pathway in place, we're seeing it more and more where Younger players want to come. They want to, you know, be involved in a in the first team level rather than reserve team or academy. They want to play games and they want to be shown how how they can be developed and given that opportunity to to move abroad. Because, you know, ultimately everybody wants to really go and play in one of the top five leagues in the world, don't they? Indeed. And are you getting the impression that those top five leagues are? Uh, uh, the USL is more on their radar. Are you getting more phone calls? Yeah, 100%. I mean, literally um, uh, in the last, well, literally yesterday, I was contacted by um, one of the top five Premier League teams about one of the players that's at one of our clubs that is in the you know American under-19s and he played against England under-19s. Now, the issue there is the GBE rules, but... You know, if, if you've got um, one of the top five teams of that calibre, then, you know, if you go to the Bundesliga where it's a lot easier to get an American lad in or into Spain to the, one of the top clubs there, you know, you know you've got the talent now. So they are, so Real Sociedad bought um, a young lad from Louisville literally 12 months ago. And, he, you know, he's been, he's been there, he's played in their reserve team, which was in, the second division so he's, he's already playing at a, a high level there in Spain and he's also been with the first team you know and Sociedad are not a, a, a poor quality outfit so again you know it shows that we have the standard we have the level and, and it will just keep growing. Let's talk about the academy platform in USL as well um, how key is that to, to growing the league and how, how and what have you been doing to help that grow? Well to be fair um, 
I think the Academy League is about maybe three years old. And our technical director, Liam O'Connell, um, literally built it single-handedly and he's done an incredible job. But then you, you've got to then, and he has a real passion for that youth development and getting you know younger players into first teams and, and the pathway to pro, as, as he calls it. And I think it's, he's, he's, like I said, he's done an incredible job there. And now it's educating the owners about succession planning and being able to, you know, give these kids a chance, bring them through, see when they're ready, see when they're not ready, bring them forward, push them back. Um, and again, you know, as, as, as our, the clubs that are better at it, you tend to have the sporting director model. So Louisville had James O'Connor, uh, you know, Orange County have obviously got Peter Nugent. So th these clubs are, are actually putting a real strategy around youth development and bringing them into the fold. And then you know, look, you, you, you're developing players, whether that player is then good enough to go to, to Europe or whether that player then potentially goes to the MLS or whether he stays with you for five, 10 years or stays in the, the USL ecosystem for that long, you've developed a player. So, you know, it, it's very much... Um, a tactical approach by by a lot of the clubs now and I, and I think now that other people can see it working you know more and more will will join forces listen to the messages that I'm promoting and and sort of come on board and does the academy model um does it work in cohesion with the community aspect of these clubs I, I think of Charlotte for example where the Charlotte Independence Academy is massive. It's got thousands yeah. of kids in it, whereas you know the the MLS team is servicing dozens of kids by comparison. So, do, is there a tie in there? Well, the, the issue that you have over here is it's the it's a pay to play model at, uh, at youth youth level, which um, rightly or wrongly, you know, is um, is here. So it's the academy system has to work whether it's affiliated or working closely with these youth systems, because they have hundreds of thousand players in, in these, in these clubs. And, and if you work closely with those in an affiliation, then your academy is your elite level player. And he's then on that pre-pro pathway, uh, hopefully to get into the first team. So again, it's, it's utilizing what you have, you know, and also, you know, because they're, they're also going to be players out there that, whose parents can't afford to pay for them to go into the academy and play. So, you know, some of our clubs are running fully funded academies that still have affiliations. So you're not missing, you know, little Johnny who can't afford to pay whatever it costs to go into the youth club, but by Christ, he's a hell of a good footballer. So, you know, some clubs offer scholarships to, to bring them in. Some clubs fully fund the academies. Um, so that you know they're they're very clever in the way that they're trying to make sure they don't miss that hidden gem. And also, we have USLW now with uh, forty four teams across twenty states in seven divisions, and the fully professional USL Super League I mentioned earlier coming next year. So that's a pretty exciting development under your tenure too. I know it is. It's it's great. I mean, it's um, I think <clears throat> the women's game here is far more advanced than I've I've seen in anywhere around the world. Um, so genuinely, our, our women's league will have the ability to be one of the top five women's league in the world. And again, if you look at the talent pool here, whether that's uh, and the pathway to professional is slightly different for women than it is for men. You know, they tend to go to college first and then 
turn professional. Um, but again, that will shift. That focus will shift when they see what type of career they can have in the game. But I think, again, the, you know, with the footprint, with the, you know, because we'll men's, you know, girls, men's and girls academies together, you know, the, the ability to, to produce players, you know, the America should be the biggest exporter of top talented female players to the rest of the world, without a doubt, because it is so far ahead of, of everybody else. Definitely. So a uh, few more questions for you, Mike. You've been very generous with your time today. I appreciate it. Um, this is a difficult question. I'm not asking you to pick a favorite child here, but are there teams in USL who you'd, you'd highlight for, for doing it right, for upholding the values of the league, for, for development, for coaching? I mean, you've mentioned Louisville, you've mentioned Orange County. Uh, is there anyone you wanted to shine a light on? Well, I think everybody, you know, I mean, we spoke about Detroit and what they've built up there in terms of the that community fan base, you know, there's there's a big tick. Louisville and, and Orange County in terms of structure and processes and pathways and plans and, you know, the sale of players. But each individual club is doing something special, um, you know, and it doesn't always get highlighted because it's not the big, you know, flashy headlines or whatever. But I think um, <clears throat> it's, you know, that we're not at the point where <clears throat> there's anybody... The people are doing outstanding jobs in various departments. And I think other clubs are then realizing that it's the right way. So they're then being very intelligent and joining forces and trying to put the right structures and process. So I wouldn't say that there's favorite that there's listen, there's there's people that are doing it very well at the moment. There are people that and then there's people that are learning how to do it. And then there's people that are just at the very beginning of, of dealing with it as well. But at each stage, you would say they're all doing very, very well. So, I mean, I've not got a favourite child, so to speak, but, you know, you've also got to acknowledge the fact that some clubs are already at a higher level and some clubs are building. And even the ones that are building are, you know, their enthusiasm and their desire to learn is, is you know, is very, very important. It's also very good because they're showing that they have that, commitment to building something special last one for you mark and it's a big one um what do you hope to build upon and improve in usl in say the coming months in the short term in the coming years we'll say and then what does usl aim to be long term 10 years 15 20 years um well if we start with the long term i think it's to be you know in an ideal world and this is only my opinion you know it would be You've got good, profitable clubs uh, within a very secure structure that you know that is aligned with the international calendar and has promotion and relegation. Um, that will have raised the levels, you know, both on and off the pitch in terms of quality and professionalism. I think that's the sort of long-term, just continued growth, continued growth on the business side, and specifically on on the football side, which is obviously my remit. So in the short term. It's just continuing the educational process, whether that's with the owners, the chief execs, the general managers, the sporting directors, even the coaches, to get the, the footballing side of the, of the club to the same sophistication levels as the business side. And if we match those two together, then you know this is going to be a very, very strong league. Exciting times ahead, Mark. You're doing very good work. Thank you very much for your time. I appreciate you. Know. I'll, I'll sling in one more question for you. Is there anything you missed the most from the UK? I know this, I get filled with this question a lot. For me, 
Cadbury's chocolate and going to Nando's because I'm a walking cliche. How about you? <laughs> um, well, I have to admit, chocolate, a hundred percent. You know, um, every time I've been back uh, to do the stuff that I do with the with the FA, I I take a spare suitcase and come back with a shed loads because the the kids miss it as well. Um, so certainly that. Um, I'm going to say probably uh, at the moment it's the, you know, you can, uh, I miss the the passion, you know, because it's not quite, that it's here, but it's not, you know, 30,000 screaming fans or or whatever it is. But that will come as the stadiums develop and everything else. So, you know, that intensity that you get um, with club football over there. But no, chocolate, definitely Galaxy, 100%. Um, uh-huh. I think that's our weakness. And and do you know what else? Walker's crisps. I miss the crisps. Cheese and onion crisps, mate. Missed them oh, as well. <laughs> yeah. Are they Lay's in the US, I guess? It's the equivalent, but not quite. It's not quite there, is it, the flavours? Yeah, and and last but not so, three things. Galaxy chocolate, Walker's crisps, and, and white bread. Yes. Because the bread is different over here. Very different. You're right. Yeah, I'd add bacon to the list as well. We could go on all day oh, about yeah. this kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, we definitely could. <laughs> but we're I'm gonna... not going to complain. <laughs> I can't complain about where I am. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Mark, as I say, you're doing wonderful stuff with the USL. Thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate you. Cheers. Appreciate that. Thanks, Ryan. Cheers, mate.